Rodney has it. your girl Mo. Welcome back to the You Had Me at Yellow podcast. Thanks for listening guys. This is episode 6 and it's all about social justice and all that good gravy <laughs> and mashed potatoes and sweet potato fries and all that good stuff. Um, <laughs> it is featuring my lovely illustrious guest Kieran Makapugai. She is also Filipinx, Filipina. Um, very, very excited because she is one of the first Filipino Americans that I'm having on the show. So please give her a warm welcome. I'm acting like she's about to come on. It's like a radio show, but here we go. Here is the social justice episode, something very near and dear to my heart. As you may know, Yellow Ranger is something along the lines of social activism. And yeah, she gives us her two cents on how to get into it, um, her work with various organizations, and she just drops so many gems, it's ridiculous. So thank you again to Kieran, and here is episode six. Hi, Lo. Hi, oh. how's it going? <laughs> it's good, how are you? I'm so glad to be talking to you. <laughs> oh, likewise, I'm honored. Yeah, thank you so much for um, reaching out to me and all that kind of stuff. I'm very excited. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah. Let's... I think it's great that you're wanting to you know, give more perspective and tell more stories. I think that's just an important thing overall, you know? Yeah, for sure. I feel like I really want it to be where where almost anybody can kind of put their two cents on, like, the Asian American community. Because there's just so many mm-hmm. different voices, you know, so. Oh, God. It's, yeah. That's such an understatement. It's totally true. There's so many. I was speaking uh, to someone else yesterday, mm-hmm. a playwright for um, Asian Story Theater down here, and we're talking about domestic violence in the Filipino community, and it was just such an interesting conversation. And that was just on one thing. You know really? I mean? Wow. So, yeah, it was, it was just really fascinating. But yeah, anyway, I know with this, this conversation can take forever, but I know we don't have forever. I know. So I just want to make sure I cover <laughs> cover what's most important to you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We can kind of like use the questions, like I said, as a guideline. Um, and if we stay longer on one topic, that's totally fine with me. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, just to give, like, people a sense of, like, what you do, but also, like, your your view on everything. Sure. Okay, so I guess I'll just dive in. Um, yeah. So, as a professor at um, San Diego City College, uh, what are some things you like to impart upon your students? So I have the great privilege of teaching social work. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because social work is one of those professions that it, that people think they understand what it is. Um, you know, it's, but it's more than just the times we have to 
remove children from unsafe environments. You know, I think anytime we say social worker, people think of, you know, child protective services. Um, and that is one of the functions, but uh, social work actually also has roots in social justice. One of the earliest social workers, uh, Jane Adams, she actually had opened um, the whole house in Chicago in the late 1800s. And I bring her up because she's such a good model of the kind of social work that I teach and the perspective that I learned and that I come from. Mm-hmm. Because not only did her... Um, her thing with her social workers and the people that she trained was to actually be in and live in the community that she was trying to serve. So um, out of this organization, uh, this is actually uh, called the Whole House, um, as part of the Settlement House Movement. But from that effort, not only did she provide services to primarily immigrant families, specifically women with children, but she helped spearhead um, the first kindergarten in the country, the first public playground in the country. Yes, she even helped institute the process for juvenile court because back in the day, children were tried as adults. Mm. The concept that children are children, that we understand now that they're not just many adults, that was not a widely held belief or knowledge base back then. And she was one of the forerunners of um, helping people understand that children have different developmental issues and that they're, you know, they're still children. They don't have the same kind right. of mental, emotional capacity as adults. Yeah. So anyway, when I think of social work, when I teach my students, I always teach them not only how to do what we call it direct service work with individuals, but how do you make an impact on an entire community? or on an entire neighborhood? What if the neighborhood is requiring? How do you take that on? Mm-hmm. So um, I always incorporate those levels of seeing the world and, you know, how they might be able to make an impact in it. Um, but from my perspective, too, one of the things I always tell my students is that there are certain theories that I teach that are important to lay the foundation for their education, but I always make sure to tell them what I've seen out in the world. So I'll tell them, you know, this is something that I'm teaching you in an ideal situation. This is what would happen, mm-hmm. but this is what I've, what me and my colleagues actually see happen <laughs> out there. Gotcha. So I try to give them this value, you know what I mean? There's this balance of theory and then practice. And um, it's always a different thing depending on the populations that you're working with. You know, one theory can completely work if everybody was, you know, the same socioeconomic level and the same ethnicity, but that's just not right. the country. So how do you bring that in and how do you um how do you always keep in mind the the three populations that social work in particular are interested in that is the people who are um oppressed, uh living in poverty mm-hmm. and um disadvantaged. Gotcha. And so, yeah, so that's always my perspective, too. I always approach any work I do from the vantage point of how this work will benefit those particular communities because they're the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I feel, um, you know, a society is only as good as the way, as, as good, what sounds the quote is the quote, like, right. a society is only as good as, you know, if you treat it most vulnerable people. I don't want to say weakest people. I've heard that um, quote, but with women, like how we treat their women. Ah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I think it also matters how we treat our children. How do we of treat course. our children? How do we treat our elderly? How do we treat our um, physically, emotionally disabled? You know, how do we treat the people at the margins? Yeah. So that's always my perspective, and that's the kind of perspective I try to teach my students too. That's awesome. So you were recently on um, the 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 city of San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about like what kind of work you did there and like what that experience was like? Sure. Um, I also used to chair the city of Chula Vista's mm-hmm. art, uh, cultural arts commission. The city of San Diego um, has a commission for arts and culture as well. I served for a little bit over a year, and that work was really really interesting. So I was appointed by uh, the council member for the community that I had grown up in. I'm here in San Diego, and then I had to be approved finally by the city council and the mayor. But that work, it, you know, it's interesting because when you talk about arts and culture and the impact of arts and culture, um, what the commission did was oversee the city's grant program. So we had several grants in the city of San Diego that arts and culture nonprofits can tap into. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we also oversaw the public arts program in the city of San Diego. And so, not oversaw, but we, you know, we would have a part of, we were part of the approval process. And so, a lot of it was just trying to uplift and maintain the role of arts and culture in the city. Um, what did it mean to have a city that has a vibrant arts and culture scene? Why is that so important mm-hmm. to the economy? Right. Why is it important to the economy? Why is it important to the social fabric of the city? Um, but what was interesting for me in particular was that the district that I represented mm-hmm. is one of the most ethnically diverse and working class districts in the city, of course. And it was also one of the least funded. Oh, wow in terms of the arts and culture grants. And that was because there are certain, you know, we have, we literally have thousands of nonprofits in San Diego. We have about 12,000 nonprofits in San Diego alone. And the smaller ones don't have quite the capacity to apply for these kinds of grants or to even be able to have a contract with the city. So to have a contract for the city to accept a grant, if you were chosen to receive a grant, you have to have good standing with the Secretary of State. Um, you had to, there's all these certain qualifications that you needed to have. And a lot of our smaller, you know, little cultural arts groups didn't have that, even if they've existed for decades. Yeah. And so one of the things, yeah, it's so interesting. You know, as a woman of color and I, and I have um, a cultural arts background too. I, I grew up in our, in our native, um, uh, the native Filipino music and folk art, um, but it's it, it's difficult to raise up the importance of that kind of art when we're competing with things like the opera, wow, or the ballet. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah, and so. Um, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's an interesting thing, and you know, and 
in the state of California, I think that, you know, I'm in California, because uh, the state still has a pretty deep appreciation for the arts. And when I say that, I mean that there is actual public money out there for the arts. And I think there are some funders who are becoming more savvy now and saying, you know, how are you actually honoring um, cultural arts mm-hmm. in particular? You know, uh, the, um, oh, what's that? the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, they were one of the very few organiza- uh, foundations that actually funded um, a youth event that I had put on. Mm-hmm. With my cousins to do things to learn how to weave the way our Lola did, the way our grandmothers wove, to learn how to um, do the dances and play the instruments that our dad. Yeah, but but those opportunities are few and far between. Totally. And we yeah we were lucky to get that because we didn't have to have the same kind of criteria that an organization who say would get a city of San Diego mm-hmm. uh, grant would have to fulfill. And so, I mean, it's great. I mean, all the arts organizations, we have um, what we call our legacy organizations, Shirley, the museum, and the ballet and the opera. I mean, it's all important and it's all vital to cultural enrichment, but my priority was trying to uplift all the fantastic artists and art efforts that were in my district with the hip-hop, the Break dancing. I mean, we have yeah. in the district, yeah, we had one of the few graffiti art parks in the entire country in District 4. That's so and, great. um, yeah, but they barely got enough support. Right. You know what I mean? I can so really it was always just, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's another thing, too. Like, how do we uplift the status of more mm-hmm. contemporary mm-hmm. street art? Yeah, I remember I had, and I won't give names or anything, but I remember meeting with an artist mm-hmm. um, who worked for a museum, and I was really proud to show him the work that our, our graffiti artists had done. And, and it, it was so funny, because after the tour and all that, he goes, yeah, it'd be really great if they learned real art one day. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like, you have no freaking idea. Yeah, like, you have no uh... idea the legacy here, you know, this is art that was born out of struggle on the street. Like, I would exactly. rather kids... Yeah, but they don't know. So you're from New York, right? So you understand. Yes. I mean, to to downplay the significance mm-hmm. of hip-hop, I mean, yeah, they just they just don't know. It's right. so funny because in art school, I had a typography teacher and I had mm. one of my um, close friends is a graffiti artist and they would also they yeah. would always get into these debates about like he would say yeah graffiti is a, is a type of typography and she would just get okay. into but what about the architecture that you're like destroying like that's also art and they would always they would get into these really intense debates and I would just thought like wow, that's wow. The, the two sort of worlds that like you know the highbrow art world and then the Yes. You know, for lack of a better term, lowbrow. Right. And that notion you said something really important. Her view already was this is destruction. Yeah. Right? Like what about the, the art that the buildings that you're defacing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We actually started one of the art parts I not me, I just started, but the art part that I did work with at one time. Mm-hmm. They started to curb tagging. There's a difference between like gang related tagging. We do have gang issues in the neighborhood. There's a difference between gang related tagging and actual like graffiti, graffiti art. Right? And so we would put these murals up on the wall so that the taggers knew not to fuck with it. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, and you know, I, and I tie that to culture because for people of color, right? We're, we're people who are, who breathe and bleed culture in so many different ways, and yet we don't get the recognition. Mm-hmm. And then we don't get the support, and then we don't get the actual money. We do don't get the recognition, and then we, but then we get appropriated at the same time. All the time. Yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure you saw, you've heard about that whole Aloha Poke trademarking drama this week. What was that about? Oh, oh God! Look at it. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna blow your lid. So <laughs> there. Oh, okay. And people are from the poke, right? The dish right. poke. Mm-hmm. It's a Hawaiian thing. It's always been, right? Right. The word aloha is a Hawaiian word. There are two aloha poke companies in Hawaii <gasps> that have existed for decades, and they've never tried to trademark. They've never tried to sue each other or anything like that. All of a sudden, there is this company, a restaurant in, out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Founded okay. and owned by white men. Right. Called Aloha Poke. And they sent out cease and desist letters. To the original one. Correct. Oh my God. To any restaurant that used the words Aloha and Aloha Poke in their name. Mm-hmm. Now, are you, where do you think you have, you may have the legal fee, but that's another thing, right? There no Native Hawaiians never think to trademark something that's always been in their language. That's such you know what I mean? Comment. So yeah, just Oh my goodness. I can't believe it. I know. Chicago? Oh, like, <laughs> right. Chicago by some dude named Zach Freelander. I mean Aye. come on now. It's so you have these just these really I think it's always interesting when we when we talk about arts and culture because people don't I think readily see the intersection of arts and culture with social justice, but if we can't even protect our language, we can't even protect our own culture, <laughs> you know? so our traditions. Like, so what do they? Anything. So do they have to actually like not have their name anymore? Like, is this actually happening? Or one one of the restaurants already changed their name? Yeah. <gasps> One of the restaurants in Alaska changed something. It's, it's all a legal battle right now. I mean, that's what the big um, the buzz is about. I know. It's so much. That's such a hot mess. It's, I know. It's, it, just, it all just went down like this week. So. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. It's like that whole um, Gordon Ramsay thing where he's going to have a new show. I forget on what network, but the whole concept is him teaching certain people how to make their food. Huh? Yeah, so he's gonna. Are you serious? Yeah, he's teaching like other cultures or like however, whatever you want to say it, how to cook their food and and that's the whole show. And he got a a ton of backlash for it. Oh my! How? I just can't. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You already like issues with that. He's like under fire for like you know the cultural insensitivity. Oh. It's called Uncharted. Oh my God, that's what's so sad about the loss of um. Oh my God, what's the name again? The one who, the one who unfortunately um. Oh, um, Andrew passed away. Payne. Yes, he respected. Yes, 
Did you see the Filipino ep- the Philippines episode? Oh God, yes, of course. Oh That's my gosh, mourned it. I mean, yeah, my dad's does- so obsessed with it. He loves like Food Network and all those types of things and cooking and and when Aww. he saw that, he was like, "Wow, I should have. He should have had me take him. This isn't that." <laughs> <laughs> right. It's amazing. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah, it's just. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, I know we can go on for days about that, but um, going back to the Arts and Culture Commission. So anyway, so those were, I mean, for me, that was my major priority. I was just trying to, trying to uplift and really represent the neighborhood that I came from. Awesome. And trying to, yeah, but you know, it was tough. It was tough. Like, you could have an organization doing such great work, but they, again, they couldn't, they didn't meet the qualifications to be able to get a contract so they couldn't get that funding, but, you know, whatever exposure we could give. I was born in the Philippines. Oh, okay. I was actually born in Kalinga, mm-hmm. um, and then I was brought here when I was right before I turned two. Ah, okay. So you were really young. Yeah, so I grew up here pretty much. Cool. Okay, so let's see. So what about, like, social justice first, like, sparked your interest? Oh, what about social justice first? So, could be many things. Oh, it's so many things, but I think, you know, because this question has been asked of me so much recently, and I think I finally narrowed it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has also to do with, like, my education and all that. You know, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, so I grew up in the 90s in a neighborhood called um, Southeast San Diego, very culturally diverse, uh, blue collar. And, you know, my parents, I, I was fortunate, right? I had two, I still had parents. They loved each other. They raised us well. Um, but my dad was active, duty, military, and he was gone. He was in several of the conflicts uh, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And that was right when I was a teenager growing up. My mom worked overtime a lot. And so I... I, uh, I got caught up in, in interesting crowds. <laughs> anyway, long story short, when I was about, oh, it was 1994, um, my friends and I were the victims of a shooting. It wasn't even a drive-by shooting because this guy actually got out of his car and walked up to us and mm-hmm. shot at us. So luckily we're all alive. I did get, um, one of my friends did get hit by a ricocheting bullet, but he's alive. And I bring up that incident because right before that, I had, um, you know, other friends who had passed away from um, gang-related type activities. And so it was just, it was just a really tumultuous time. Mm-hmm. It was also the first time the San Diego Police Department opened up an Asian gang investigation division. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the problem was getting that bad. And so... um you know, I, I felt like, like we just didn't know how to react. We didn't know what to do uh, as a community, you know. And the person who shot at us was also Filipino. Mm. And so he, he was from a different neighborhood. But um, I remember from that incident, I remember my mom wanted to move right away. She was like, I don't want to live here anymore. My Children can't even, my daughter can't even go outside, just to go outside without getting shot at, you know? And I remember my dad very firmly said, no, this is our home. 
we should never be afraid to be in our own home. Mm -hmm. And so they live there to this day. But I remember, um, you know, that stuck with me, that sticks with me to this day because there was a sense of like, no, you don't, you don't just leave the community when it starts to get rough. You you tough it out and you do your best to try to make it better. And so the next day, um, actually my, my friends and I, who live on the street actually started knocking on doors. It was my first door knocking experience. If you're familiar with the, with a lot of the um, campaign tactics, door knocking is one of the things that you learn to do when you canvas mm-hmm. um, and, and when you're in community organizing, but you literally just talk to your neighbors. A lot of us don't know how to do that anymore. You know, we lose a lot of that. We don't talk to our neighbors. And so I remember that day, the day after that, we asked, I wanted, I told my, my friend, like, no, let's go talk to our neighbors. I don't want them to think that we're lazy, horrible yeah. gangs or kids because we weren't. Yeah. I had friends who were in gangs. I did hang out with them, but there's a really clear difference between who is, who's in and who's not. And so that was an important thing for us to actually talk to our neighbors and meet them and say, hey, you know, I know this happened, but don't like, we're not bad people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was, I think that, that incident for me really changed my life around because that's when I decided at the time I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't even know about social work. I didn't know about social justice. Nobody ever came to talk to our school about community organizing or any, I didn't even know what those concepts were, Mm -hmm. but I decided I was going to major in psychology because of what I wanted to do was work with troubled young people. You know, it's it's really easy for me to, like the person who shot at us, right? It'd be really easy for me to hate or loathe or fear that person. But like, I don't, I don't have that kind of malice in my heart to this day. Yeah. My reaction to that more was like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't even know us. Yeah, we're the yeah. same people. Like, like there's other shit that we're gonna have. Exactly. There's other shit we have, we're fighting already on a daily basis. Like, why? There's no reason for us to turn each other. So what would happen? Like, what happened where we're, we're closed in in this community this way that we feel like we need to do this to each other? That's bullshit. There's no reason for that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, I wanted to major in psychology. My original goal was to become, um, like a child psychologist to work with youth. I, um, worked with the juvenile court school for a while. Because um, I always had a soft spot for thugs, even if thugs shot at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then that's when I, in in my senior year of undergrad, that's when I learned about social work, and I ended up um, getting accepted to a master's of social work program. And then in that program, mm-hmm. yeah, that's when I learned about. We actually had a concentration for the first time. It was funny. It was like the first year they introduced a concentration in community organizing. Mm-hmm. So I was part of that inaugural class, and that just just it just opened my eyes to you know when we think about people who um, like people who are depressed, uh, people who have drug issues, um, right. you know people who just can't seem to get their lives together. Like we we tend to, especially in our communities too, we tend to want to blame the individual. Like it's all their fault if nothing else. But right. the reality of it is that we're all, we're all affected by our environment. You know we're affected by society we're affected by um the opportunities that we have the resources that we have in our communities and so that just really opened my eyes to thinking bigger like mm-hmm. it's you can have problems as a person but when you have so many people in the same community with the same freaking problems 
Maybe it's not an individual issue anymore. Right, right. Yes. So that's when the concept of social justice and looking at things systemically, um, that's when it bit me in the ass. And I just thought, wow, I never, you know, learning to see the world in that way and what can we do from this? How do we, how can we change the environment? How can we change these systems? Right. I mean, I totally respect people who do work uh, with individuals and do that one-on-one, like really in-depth work. Um, but I think for me, my role really laid in that more wider macro systemic type policy place. Wow. Cool. Does that make sense? Yeah, Sorry, I ramble sometimes. So just, just check, just check me, okay? <laughs> I start going down. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. Okay, awesome. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've been wanting to get more, like, I guess, involved in things like canvassing and, like, community organizing. So, like, how, like, how would you, I guess I'll just jump to this other question, but, like, if someone yeah. wants to start that, sort of journey like someone like me like what kind of tips would you give them look at what's in your neighborhood mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize what resources there are uh, where, what part of New York do you live in again um, I was I was raised in Queens but right now I live in Long Island okay yeah there are tons you know it's funny because the organization that I used to work for um, mm-hmm. we had a sister organization in in Buffalo it was called Open Buffalo mm-hmm and they were doing some really, really fascinating work on uh, socioeconomic disparities in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Long, I mean, it's here in New York, it's rife with social justice <laughs> type efforts. Uh, I used to go totally. here with, um, yeah, there's just so many. So I think, you know, honestly, for people who don't know, do a, do a quick online search, look up what's there in your community. Like, it could either be community-based or it could be a cause. Like, say that you're really mm-hmm. passionate about LGBTQ issues. Totally. You know, what mm-hmm. exists in your community. Yeah, I think people just need to educate. Just, just see what's out there. There are tons and tons of groups, um, formal and non-formal, that are always trying to lay the groundwork for this, you know, for all kinds of movements. So... I think it's important just to just learn what's around you first and then pick um, which causes you want to focus on because your heart can be pulled in a million directions. But I think it's important that you kind of focus on, you know, what issues are important to you right now mm-hmm. and how do you want to get involved in those issues because, you know, it just depends for everybody. Right, totally. Even if you're like a volunteer, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, like, I mean, canvassing isn't the most sexy thing for some people, but it's a really important thing, too. Like, every campaign year, even if it's not really, like, a candidate that you want to work for, but I'd say that there are a lot of organizations, nonprofits even, that are always trying to push some kind of policy and legislation. Mm-hmm. Like, right now, um, just here in San Diego, just yesterday, I wasn't there, but there were several nonprofits and labor unions that are pushing to and um uh, discrimination in public housing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we have such a yeah we have such a homeless um, issue here. We have we lack we have like zero affordable housing here in San Diego. Not zero, but it's really really tough. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get even more tough because there are laws that were put in place 30 years ago um, that are actually going to expire soon. So there's going to be a massive massive deficit of the few 
low-income and affordable units that are here in San Diego, and there's no incentive to keep them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, but a lot of them are trying to push policy around it right now. They're trying to push certain ordinances around it, around the county. Um, so, you know, you just there's always stuff happening. You just have to do the legwork and find out. Find out what's there. So what does, um, like it's been a pretty popular thing lately, intersectionalism. So mm-hmm. what does that mean to you and how come, why do you think it's been gaining popularity? Say, so when I approach, the, that's a great question. So I'm, I'm, I'm a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not enough that I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Like, you just take feminism, which uh, which can be a really touchy subject. But when we approach what it means to be um, to be a woman, right? So something I teach part of the part of what I teach when we talk about um, voting rights, for example, mm-hmm. women didn't get the right to vote until thirty year, twenty to thirty years after men did, after mm-hmm. black men did, even. Yeah. Right. But then for women of color, it was even another issue. So I think intersectionality is important because we have so many layers of identity. Like I am a woman of color trying to exist here in the U.S., mm-hmm. right, specifically in San Diego. Um, and I live in a in a pretty large Filipino community, but on top of that, too, if, like if if I just look at my existence in the Filipino community, I'm I'm native Filipino, I'm Igor, and Igorots in the Philippines face a lot of discrimination and ostracization. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole different layer of identity, you know what I mean? That I that I don't wouldn't necessarily explain to somebody who was not Filipino. So depending on which community I'm existing in at the time, who I am and all the different identities that I have do make a difference. Like if I'm entering the space, um, like I have, I have uh, my friends who um, are part of Black Lives Matter in San Diego. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very cognizant of not taking up too much space in those circles. Mm-hmm. Right, making sure that I'm invited, number one, and then number two, if I'm invited, that I um, take leadership from the population that's most affected. Mm-hmm. at a time, that being black people and then black women specifically. So, you know, I think just depending on which space I'm in, um, whichever one of the many identities I have, I have to operate from those identities. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It like, definitely does. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, you know, the there was a time when the majority of my work was in fundraising. Mm-hmm. And so I would be, sometimes I would be the only person of color in a room full of um, people who were older and white and male who had way more money that I could ever imagine having. Yeah, wow. And having to exist in that space was mm-hmm. so, I still had to learn to be able to feel like I belong in that space. And then there was a point, you know, it's interesting because I used to feel like, oh, what a, what can I do to feel like I belong here? And the fact is that I just didn't. I didn't belong there. And I'm at a point now where I'm like, I'm okay with not belonging here because I don't, I don't belong in this space. And this is not the space that I care to be in anymore. 
Yeah. I feel like we all have that realization where you're just like, you're told one thing to just fit into a certain box your whole life, and you're like, wait, I actually fit into my own box. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you might fit into, like, a million boxes. Totally. You know? And that's, and that's I think totally okay. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, so... Does that does that help answer that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay, um, cool. So, let's see. Let's, so, post-Trump, what are some tangible hmm. ways we can activate the Asian-American community? Um, we definitely need more voters. Mm-hmm. Our Asian-Americans need to register to vote. Okay. At, at the most base, simple thing, we need that. Um, I've actually been very fortunate to be part of many of the civic engagement um, API and Latino targeted voter registration efforts in San Diego throughout the past like decade. And we helped increase those numbers exponentially. So we need to register people to vote, and then we need to actually get them to the polls. Mm-hmm. So they actually need to vote and turn out, you know. Um, so I think those are really solid options. Another thing, though, I think I, I think it's important since you're specifically asking in the era of post-Trump. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. You know, there's in, in the Asian community, it's so interesting because there's a big divide, I think, between the conservative and non-conservative Asian Americans. Mhm. I thought that's um, a great point. Yeah, yeah. We're like the whole model minority myth. Our own people buy into that shit sometimes. Yeah, all they don't the time. quite understand. Oh yeah, and they don't understand that that's been used to divide us. And so, and it, and it doesn't exist. You know, it's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> We're not all doing great. You know what I mean? It's just not true. That was a myth put up to criticize other people of color. Right. Because we don't talk about shit. We, we don't air our, I think, Asian American communities tend to, I think with our younger generations, we're vocal, right? We're not afraid to hide things and tell stories. And I think that's important. So I love, you know, um, what you're doing with your podcast and, and with your Instagram. Yeah, because it's important. This, this, these kinds of narratives are important because I think the generations before us, they struggled so much they had to fight just to survive here. Yeah, totally. I don't know that they, right? And so I don't even know that they even have the energy to complain. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it like the Filipinos are like the fourth largest immigrant group in America? Something like that. So it's like we're not even close to being a minority to begin with. Mm-mm, no. And that term, that term minority and majority is like, I feel like that's not even accurate. Mm-hmm. You're right. By 2020, oh God, I should know it's in my lecture somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're becoming more of a majority ethnically diverse country. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, though, because in San Diego, for example, our older generations um, tended to vote conservative. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so it's so interesting, right? 
So I think there's a lot of education still that needs to be done. And I yeah. think that people need to be reminded that we're brown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think sometimes people forget. Yeah. And they think that we're exempt. Yeah, they think that we're exempt from racism. And no, they're coming for other communities. What makes you think they're not going to come? They're already coming for us. <laughs> we're getting people deported. Oh, my God. We have so many. That's, you know, like with the immigration issue, right, and being mm-hmm. undocumented. People didn't realize how many, at least here in the state of California, we have an overwhelming number of undocumented APIs, specifically Filipinos. Wow. Who are, um, they overstay their visas. Mm. Mm-hmm. A huge amount, but we don't talk about it. Yeah. We don't talk about it. And then, and then sadly, I think it's important that we turn out, like, you know, it's funny we could say, oh, they're Filipinos, so we should care, right? I mean, you, 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 it's so easy, which I think is a great part of our culture. Like, it's so easy to support when a victim or somebody is, is Filipino. You have people who come out in mass to help each other. But I think it's also important to show up for the other communities. That's a great point. That aren't Filipino. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, when we talk about intersectionality, right, we can't mm-hmm. only be concerned with the issues that affect us. They may not affect us right now, but they will eventually. Yeah. So, like, going off of talking about, like, immigrants and migrant families, like, you were recently on a panel discussing, like, how to help migrant children and their families. Like, can you share your mm-hmm. experience with this? Yeah, and... You know, I was asked to be on that panel to offer the mm-hmm. points of somebody, um, you know, who's trained and teaches social work. The National Association of Social Workers and the American, the American Academy of Pediatrics or Pediatricians. So you might want to double check that one. Mm-hmm. But these professional associations who are actually committed to the well-being of humans, mm-hmm. specifically children. There are multiple organizations like this, professional organizations, who have all denounced the practice of separating children from their parents right. mm-hmm. at the borders. There is just no reason for it. And I think one of the things um, that was important to educate our, our communities on during that panel was for them to understand that being here undocumented it's not a crime. Right. Totally. It's it's a civil infraction that is typically handled in civil court like a divorce. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's not criminal law. And people didn't know that. And so they're assuming, you know, this whole narrative of people coming here. By the way, a lot of the people who are coming here are coming here legally to seek asylum, mm-hmm. which is completely legal. Um, and and people just don't know. You know, we're having we're having to educate and combat these other narratives of uh, people undocumented being criminal. Um, you know, as if there's any kind of reason for separating children from their families. So there's no reason to do that. They're really... And they shouldn't, they shouldn't even be detained in the first place. I know. Like, you what know did I mean? they even do to deserve something Nothing. like that? Mm-mm. They They're literally to existed in a, in a certain yeah. place and time. Right. Yep. Right. 
So crazy. Trying to escape a country, told that they can come and seek asylum. Mm-hmm. And then not only are they not allowed to seek asylum, but then their child is taken away from them. And then, mm-hmm. and then we don't know where the hell some of the kids are, which is just preposterous. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, you know, from a social work perspective is that, um, you know, what, what was happening is that, um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how that even happened that we would somehow not have proper documentation on where children are being placed, these children being placed in foster care, but we already have an overwhelmed foster care system. Mm-hmm. We already have, we don't have enough placements or places to put children, like children whom we have to remove from abusive homes, for example. Right. right. These are not kids that are being abused. Right. You have exactly. actual kids being abused that we have to find safe homes for, mm-hmm. and that's tough to do. So why would you overwhelm that system even more? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was talking about that. Um, it was nice because on the panel there were organizations there, specifically the ACLU of San Diego and Imperial Counties, and then Casa Cornelia Center, um, who have lawyers who will represent the children. Mm-hmm. Pro bono. So um, on that panel with me, we actually had that executive director and her team of lawyers uh, will come down when they, when they can or when they find out, um, and they come and help represent the children because the children can't trial themselves right. at the age of four. No way. I think, yeah, isn't that insane? That's insane. That's it's insane. I mean, they're kids. They don't know what's happening. They're terrified. They're jumping on the table and they're their children, you know? So, um, yeah. So, but that panel was great because it really, Mm -hmm. number one, it helped clarify what the issues were for the audience um, who was there. Um, And it helped. But that, that, that fact of, you know, being here on document is actually not criminal law, you know, and that this was also an executive order because there's also, there is a long history of immigration. I mean, I even have to say under President Obama, there were a large number of deportations mm. under his administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but this executive order, which separated the children, that was signed this year. Right. By the current president. So mm-hmm. that was new. Um, and what he did, if I'm correct, if I'm correct, when he reneged on that executive order, when he did another executive order to turn that executive order around for the model backlash, I want to say he did something where we were able to turn being undocumented into criminal law. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not positive about that, but I remember right. reading that somewhere. So, like, you know, these, the, when we talk about policy um, and law, they're changing all the time. You know, they're changing literally day by day (laughs) under this administration. Yeah, so we're trying to keep up with it, you know, trying to understand, like, you as a professor, there's almost entire chapters in the book that I'm using that are almost obsolete now because the laws have changed so much in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. So just that time alone, you know, just trying to give people resources, tell them what organizations are doing the work. Mm-hmm. So they can support those organizations, you know, speaking up, calling their congressmen and telling them, like, hey, you need to make sure that we don't support this order. We need to make sure that we're not, you know, we're doing what we can to reunify families at the border. Um, just pushing people to move, you know, even if right. even if they're not comfortable, they can write a letter to their elected. Oh, hold on a second. I'm sorry. No problem. They can write a letter to their elected official. They can put in a phone call. They can have conversations 
with their family members who aren't understanding what's happening. I mean, it all makes a difference. There was also a cool thing um, that I tried. It's this app called Global Citizen. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, they also have, they have a festival, I think, every year that's like a music festival. And basically, yeah, so it's like if you wanted to, you know, gain reward, you could like gain rewards if you if you took certain actions through the app. So let's say, mm. yeah, it's really cool. You should tr- you should try it out. And it's like, oh, um, write an email. Like they'll even help you. All, like take this email draft and send it to this person or this organization, and like fight for clean water in Africa by by doing this, or like call your congressman and talk to him about this. So it's really cool because it, it kind of just reaches out to the whole millennial crowd. Um, That's great. I yeah. love hearing that. Yeah. So it's so like, funny because that whole, like, music festival, that's, you know, way after me. But I have a lot of family, you know, my family friends who are um, very involved in that scene. So that's that's great to hear. Yeah, it was really cool. And what, what like, prompted me to, to like, get it was to actually go to the Global Citizen, like, festival that all these no, nice. artists that I love were in. And I was like, what? So it's like a great cause and it just, you know, all types of um, topics that you could like, or like, uh, I guess cause is a better word, like girls and women, health, education, like finance, like hunger, water, environment, citizenship. Oh, wow. It's a, it had like literally spends everything. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, is there one for racial justice? Let's see. Hmm. I guess that one could fall under. Hmm. I think that's important. So, you know, it's interesting, like, just kind of going back to your question about about intersectionality, you know. I think, like, all causes are important. They are. I mean, please don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really interesting. I think what's important for people to keep in mind is that, you know, it's, it's all connected, right? And I think... It's really important. I think people tend to want to support what's not so scary. Mm-hmm. Um, or these, like, global type of causes. Because it's true. I mean, my God, if we don't take care of our environment, we're all going to go to shit, you know? Yeah, totally. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I think there are some communities that are literally, like, dying right now. Mm-hmm. So... So, you know, it's just interesting. I think it's important that people find where they want to fit in. You know what I mean? Like, where do you want to support? Like, what? where do you feel like you can make the most impact? Which side of history do you want to be on? Yeah. 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 So, sort of... Anything? Okay, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, No, go ahead, because I was going to jump to the next question. Okay. (laughs) No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, in the... One one thing, you know, as, as difficult as it is right as it is right now, being in there, mm-hmm. I wish it was post. It's not post Trump, right? But he's still president, so we're we're trying to deal with that. But these conversations about race mm-hmm. and the way we're having them now, I think, is so vital because people like to think that racism disappeared for a while and is just suddenly coming back, and it's always been here. You know what I mean? Absolutely. We're just, we're just yeah, it's like they never went away. Like, no. This is nothing new. Like, 
you know, we talk about um, how my children have been separated, but we did that to slaves, families of slaves. We took children away from them then. We took children away from Native American families and put them in boarding schools where they died. I mean, this is not a new practice. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that people also, you know, we just... Yeah, we just have to realize like the, the the really deep deep issues that exist in this country, and then hopefully do something about it because this shit is happening again, and it should not be happening in this day and age. Right, I agree. So to sort of like switch gears, um, in our community, there's a stigma around mental health. Mm. So, what do you think? are some things we can do to to break that stigma and like spread more awareness. We have to understand that mental health is not anything to be ashamed of. Mhm. Someone someone breaks their leg. You don't tell them that they're they just need to get over it. Right? Right. Somebody has cancer. You don't tell someone to just get over it or that it's just in their head. Right, exactly. And so, yeah. there. You know, it's interesting because there are different perspectives in the mental health community on how you talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically, though, there's mental health and there's mental illness. Right. When someone right, is right, mentally right. ill, yeah, we have to recognize that. And in our community, it's not... I mean, I'll talk about mental health first, I think. You know, we have, because we're such a, we're people who thrive on being resilient, mm-hmm. right? We're a hardy people. We think of ourselves, when I say us, I say Filipinos, Filipino Americans, um, we respect strength and courage. Mm-hmm. And somehow, unfortunately, being depressed, being sad, or not able to get over things is seen as personal weakness. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to talk about it. And we don't want to acknowledge it. Um, I have young people who come to me telling me that they want to see a therapist, but their parents won't let them. Right. Like, are you wanting your kid to kill herself because you're not letting her talk to somebody, mm-hmm. you know? Or they don't want their child to tell anybody. They don't want them to be vocal about it because they'll think you're crazy. Um what yeah. do people think, right? There's this whole notion of saving face. But the ch- but they're sick. Yeah. Your child is sick. You're, you're going to do what you can to get them better, right? So we have to get over that notion that it's an imagined condition. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is a very real, real condition, and and it will kill you if you don't handle it. Absolutely. And if you don't get the treatment. Yeah. You see it all the time, right? How many? Yeah. You know, it's sad. We could all name at least one or two people that we know who are Filipino, Filipina, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't. No. It shouldn't be that easy to name someone who has, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I I, I want to say at least, I'm a parent. And mm-hmm. my friend, my peers who are parents, they're all really open about talking about mental illness and mental health with their, with their kids. So I think it makes me hopeful that I think because we're just more educated about it, we grew up here, mm-hmm. that we can talk about it with our children. And we, I know a lot of times like, we're actually trying to talk to our parents about it too, yeah. encouraging our parents to go talk to a therapist, to talk to a counselor. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, so I think it starts there, just getting people comfortable with it, educating them, mm-hmm. um, letting people understand that it is an illness. Yeah. You know, you're going to have your bad days. But when it gets to the point where they're not able to function anymore, where they're not able to, you know, do the things that they enjoyed all of a sudden, then, then we have to take that seriously. If you want them to live, I mean, it can be a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that those educational pieces together really make a difference. Because, you know, it's interesting. There was a big push here, um, at least in San Diego and California, to have more therapists. So we have a lot, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. we have a lot more Filipino and Asian therapists, but we still need, we need the people to be okay to go get treatment from them. No, absolutely, yeah. Yes, you can have the provider, you can have the people there, but if they're not being accessed, Mm -hmm. then what are those holdups? So, um, you know, I used to work at the Union of Pan-Asian Communities, and they were one of the organizations who do, they still do a really, really good job. providing mental health treatment to communities of color. And there's someone specifically targeted Filipino and other API communities to make sure that they would go out and seek mental health uh, treatment because it's so important. So I think, I think we're getting better at it. Um, I was at an open mic the other month where there were these 11-year-old Filipino girls who talked about their depression on the mic. I was so proud of them. They were so young, but they, yeah, they were they were willing to talk about it. And I was so happy. And, and you know, what's so funny about that night? Um, the mom, one of their girls, her her mom was a friend of mine from high school that I hadn't seen since high school. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my god, that's your daughter. I said, you know, thank you for letting her talk about this. Of course. And thank you for her. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. I don't know. If I went up on a mic and told people I was depressed, I think my mom would still have a hissy fit. I'm 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, she would still freak out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I think it is getting better, but we we still have a ways to go. Yeah, I agree. I think definitely talking yeah. about it more um mm-hmm. And just, like, normalizing it is definitely key. Another thing that kind of, like, plagues our community is colorism. And I definitely Mm -hmm. see that prevalent among, like, you know, Filipino, the Filipino community. So what are some ways, I guess, I guess first, like, talk about, like, what that actually looks like. And then, like, what are some ways we can sort of combat that? So, to this day, right, you go into any, you go into any Asian market, mm-hmm. you look at the skin products, they almost all have whitening. Yep. The, and you know this already, but, you know, for listeners, for people who don't know, the bleaching and skin whitening beauty industry has, like, I don't even, I can't even say quadrupled. It's more than that. Mm-hmm. It's tupled out or whatever. <laughs> it has boomed in recent years. So you, you, I mean, in Asia, they're bombarded with all this messaging that to be lighter is better or beautiful. Like we're, we have mothers who were raised with that notion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the comedian Rex Navaretti, are you familiar with him? Yes. 
stuff. No, but I mean, that was a big thing in his kit, right? He would talk about his sister and how her their mom was so afraid she'd get dark and nobody yeah. would marry her. Exactly. You know? And yeah. he laughed because we could all relate, you know? I have to say, I'm really, I'm fortunate because I'm, I'm, I'm on the darker side and I'm really proud of that mm-hmm. now, but it took me a while to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad my mom, she would say, she wouldn't comment in on my skin color because she would say like, oh, we're going to marry you. You're so, you know, I'm maybe like, whatever. <laughs> it had more to do with my mannerisms. But right, right. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm fortunate that she, yeah, she didn't try to push any of like that you need to be lighter or you need to not go in the sun. She never said that stuff to me. Thank God. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people whose moms did, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And so what does that look like? That looks like, and I've had, I've been on panels about this too, but when your own people are telling you that the skin you all share is not beautiful yeah. or not desirable, like how much does that fuck with your head? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That just, that's just, that's the very skin. Yeah. I think, like, what I kind of, my my experience with it is, like, noticing my cousins getting, like, praised for being lighter, I guess, or, like, mm-hmm. looking more East Asian. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. until, like, one of them said something about it. And I was like, yeah, we do kind of comment on the fact that you guys don't look, like, you know, quote-unquote typical Filipino and then you guys look like more East Asian. Like the amount of times that it comes up. Wow. And like and as a as a plus. As as like a good thing. Yeah, like yeah. Well, I I didn't realize it until they were like, were like, yeah, it sort of bothers me, you know? Because I do want to look Filipino because that's what I am. But right. just because I don't look a certain way doesn't mean I'm I'm not what I'm not, you know? So that kind of opened right. my eyes to the whole situation. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Little tiny, like, microaggressions like that add up to certain, to certain yeah. people, yeah. Oh, totally. And it's heartbreaking, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's racism that comes from, like, non-Filipino, non-Asians, and white people, but then mm-hmm. there's the colorism, and so that, it just makes you really sad. That's, that's internalized colonization, you know what I mean? That's, they've done such a good job making us feel like we're not good enough and that's so sad um mm-hmm. i you know it's funny my friend i have a friend who's a who's a mestizo and his his wife is a dark-skinny lucana you know yeah. and uh but their kids came out super super pale Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and it's funny because he would actually prefer they have like a darker skin. You know what I mean? Because he yeah. he loves his wife's skin. I mean, she's gorgeous. Right. But it, it and it disturbed him how much people would say, "Oh, it's good your son looks like you," or that he's he's light skinned. Um, you know, my, I have two nephews that are brothers, and one's darker, the other one's lighter. And his one of the Filipino teachers one day said, "Oh, this one looks like seven up." And this one looks like, well, then she said, this one looks like Pepsi and this one looks like 7-Up. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, oh, that's good. He's light. Like, yeah, it's always this positive thing. Like, oh, and oh, thank God. Like, thank God the Filipino-ness is being faded out. Like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> who, 
I think, and I think, I think that has more to do with older generations, like the younger, the younger girls I see here. And I, and I mentioned the girls because a lot of the beauty products, you know, they tend to be centered on females, but I don't see that ethos anymore. Yeah. Or not as much. Yeah. I think in our younger generation. Yeah. So that makes me happy. Yeah. That we're starting to come over that. Mm hmm. But yeah, this whole thing and again, it just, it has to do with everything, right? It has to do like with this um this confused identities that I think we some people tend to have, and so just trying to foster that security, and that also has to do with the mental health, right? How can you how can we help our people be more secure in themselves? Where they're okay saying, you know what, maybe I'm depressed. Where they're okay not being super light skinned. Like, why is it so hard for us to be so secure in who we are? I know. It's, it's, I think this is the quote, is that they they taught you not to love yourself, you know? Like, so your whole yeah. life is kind of like learning how to love yourself and, like, realizing that that's not such a crazy notion, you know? Like, to actually mm-hmm. accept who you are and, like, be who you are, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And when you when we talk about that sometimes with people, they'll think that it's like a selfish thing. They're like, uh-huh. Oh, that's silly, like why are you so, you know, caught up in just loving yourself? Like, why is that bad? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, oh I'm sorry, my son. It's all good. <laughs> having having four year olds is like Oh my god. Speaking to someone with Tourette, so yeah, he's 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 a wild one this one. So <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I can go for days just on that topic alone, but that, you know, that's something that it still comes up. It still comes up because I think, again, at least here in our Filipino American community, we do have multiple generations of people trying to work on different issues, right? And I think that, um, it's been really interesting having that conversation about colorism with our, our older generations because they didn't realize how much that affected their daughters. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we and it's. I mean, we're fortunate because at least the aunties who are in those circles they listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing how they they just didn't realize like how much that that hurts younger women when we say shit like you're too dark and stuff like that. They yeah. had no idea because that's what they grew up hearing themselves. Mm-hmm. I forgot yeah. where I saw it. It was this. Um, I think it was an Asian ad. I think it might have been Korean and. Um, they, there were like pictures of hands holding like cosmetics and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. the insides of the, I guess the, the darker girl's hands were also black, and yeah, like that's not a thing. Like if people who have darker skin don't have dark like palms and stuff like that, so right. it just showed like how ill-informed like our community is on like skin like different skin tones you know what I mean so it was like that they yep. that they actually hired someone and then covered her with makeup instead of just hiring someone who was darker it's just like it was mind-boggling to me I was like so right. you wanted you wanted to be inclusive but then totally missed the mark and then mm-hmm. yeah it's another form of racism yeah and it's, I mean, if you, yeah, are you familiar with the um, the 1904 St. Louis World Fair mm-hmm. and what happened 
very familiar with that. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send you the link one day, but that's when, yeah, that's when, um, the United States, when Spain ceded the Philippines to the U.S., right? And to justify it, mm-hmm. that's when they took different people from the different provinces all over the Philippines and brought them here. Mm-hmm. And showed them off at the World's Fair. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah. they literally ranged, yeah, and then they ranged in skin color. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. we were like put on display. Yeah, I mean, like a, so cir- it was sort of like a circus act, yeah. Oh, totally. It totally was. It totally was. And it, and you know, the, and, and then our own people, it's sad when our own people internalize that kind of thinking too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. colorism, it all plays into that. See, the, the, one of the sides of the racism colonization coin. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's the end of those questions. Is there anything that you'd like to plug, like anything upcoming you have going on, and like where can people find you and all that kind of stuff? Well, well, let me ask you because I haven't, we haven't even had a chance to like really. I haven't had a chance to really learn about you. Like, what yeah. can I ask you? Okay, like what? Of course. What me? What drove you to want? want to do this um well i first created yellow ranger because i was looking for something like it i was looking for like a community where like i could come and talk to other asian americans about like everything that affects us the latest news and culture and like what's going on with politics and all that kind of stuff and i just thought it was crazy that i uh, up until like now I'm in, like, my late 20s. I I hadn't found that community yet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's so strange, right? Like, I'm the demographic for that kind of stuff. Like, why am I not coming across it? So I kind of created it out of necessity. And then after Mm -hmm. I created, you know, the social media accounts and then, like, the blog, that's when I kind of fell into the world. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's so many resources out there, actually. Like, there is a little community that talks about social justice and all that kind of stuff in the Asian American community. So I was like, oh, oh totally. Yeah. After yeah, after I, after I created it, that's when I came across them, and like yeah. really started tapping into the conversation. So, so yeah, that's why I created Yellow Ranger to begin with. But then the reason why I do the podcast is just so that um, all the different voices that are within our community can get a platform to say what they have to say because I feel yeah. like with like the whitewashing in Hollywood of Asian roles or Asian American roles and things like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. give us even more reason to like explain to everyone else like who we really are and yep. if we don't tell people who we are then they're going to assume that we all look like we're East Asian and that we all are right. East Asian, <laughs> you know? Right. So I kind of wanted to just be like, okay, this is going to be the place where, like, everyone can kind of just get on the proverbial, like, soapbox and say, this is my story as an Asian American and this is why my voice matters, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad because you're... you're um there, I mean, there are multiple avenues and multiple groups who do this, but I think it's, you mentioned that you're in your, 
How how young are you? How old are you? I don't want to say old. I'm you're in your 20s? Yeah. 20s. Okay. Okay, you're not too young anymore. Nope. <laughs> but I think it's important, like, that, that demographic. You know, it's funny because people are always talking about, like, how do we... How do we bring in millennials and how do we make millennials care? Blah blah blah. And I'm like, I don't know. Have you tried talking to them? I mean, it's not. <laughs> no, it's true. It's not rocket science, you know. <laughs> and I've been called like I've been called like a social media activist, and I was like, yeah, I guess that is what I am. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. No, not at all. And I never saw myself as an activist before, like this election, actually, and. That's when I started actually going to like the women's march and things like that, and I was like, I was like, wow, there's so much value in actually like doing something instead of talking about it, you know. So I kind of totally, yeah. I'm glad. I'm so glad, and I appreciate it. I think you know it's funny because we always go down the road of all all that's wrong. Yeah. One of the things, you know, that, that I try to teach my students is we call this the strength-based perspective. Like, we can't forget what makes us strong. Like, we can't, you know, it's, it's important to celebrate what we do right in our community. Like, we're just in a community. Like, you know, it's, we have a lot of work to do around colorism. We have a lot of work to do around destigmatizing mental health. But at the same time, when we need to show up for each other, we do. Yeah, I agree. And I think, yeah, and that's amazing. So how do we do more of that, you know? And then how do we show up for everybody else, too? Yeah. That's, and I like, think, that know. reminds me of, like, um, I did this post, basically, like, uh, when Black Lives Matter was, ha- like, first, you know, become, like, getting more um, recognition. And I wrote mm-hmm. an article of, like, why Asian Americans should support it. Just because there's so yeah. much rich history. um of, you know, the civil rights movement and Asian Americans supporting black people back then. It's like Absolutely. we've always we've always done this. It's like almost in our history. So it's like mm-hmm. we have to do so do so now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because our people are affected too. You know? Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it enough. Mhm. But I think that's why like the talking about it matters because Unless everybody else understands, like, oh, crap, what my family, my community is going through is also happening in L.A., it's happening in Chicago, it's happening in New York, it's happening in even the small towns. Like, that's all important to talk about so that mm-hmm. we can actually then do something about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So, anyway, you know, all it all works and it's all important. So, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, and, you know, if there's anything that we talked about that you want deep clarification on or anything, let me know. Um, oh, you had asked me, so I'm, I'm also executive director of Asian Pacific Islander Community Actions yeah. of California. So we serve as a um, a hub for several grassroots projects that mm-hmm. exist here at the Korea Ate Mentorship Program okay. um, made in Paradise Hills. Yeah, which is the name of group. And so if anyone's ever interested, you know, you can find all the different, oh, Barangay, um, Arts and Culture Movement, which hosts uh, Salon Fest, which is, I think, in its 14th, 15th year now. Wow. So arts and culture, activism, all of that, social justice, I mean, it all does intersect. And so it's just it's a great honor to be part of something that helps make all that connect and make it happen. So if people are ever interested, they can always look me up there. 
Okay, awesome. So, All right, well, well thank you thank for you having so me. Much. Cool. This is my number, so if you ever need anything else, just give me a call. Okay, thank you again so much for your time and for believing in Yellow Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Rodney has it. So that was my interview with Kieran Makabugai. I learned so much about how to get started on a social justice journey and I'm truly honored to have had her as a guest. I hope you learned something from her story as well. Um, and as you may know, if you're an avid listener or if you're new here, I'll fill you in on a not so secret secret. Every episode I close out with a self-care or self-love tip. This episode I want to focus on actually taking breaks when at work. If you're like me, you tend to eat lunch at your desk or order in, get some seamless or something along those lines. I am suggesting that you step away from your desk, go outside, get some fresh air, even though it might be colder now in here in New York at least, and take your break. Even if it's mid-afternoon, you should definitely take a 10 to 15 minute break to refresh yourself. You will feel a little better, hopefully. It's important to step away from our screens and assignments and deadlines and hit the reset button. Even if it's your lunch break for just 30 minutes, like you're allowed and permitted to take that time for yourself. So take advantage of that. If your workplace or school or whatever doesn't allow you the freedom to take such breaks maybe it's time to reassess just how healthy of an environment that is and on that note i'll leave you to your day may it be filled with light thanks for listening folks also want to give a shout out to rodney hazard for producing the intro and outro music peace out y'all